Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Barbican Screen Talks Archive Podcast. Every episode, we're proud to bring you the most interesting insights into cinema from the Barbican's extensive collection of live Q&A recordings. These conversations usually revolve around a filmmaker, but in this episode, we've got something a little different. Author Naomi Alderman is in conversation with the Barbican's head of cinema, Gally Gold, talking about the 2018 adaptation of her 2006 debut novel, Disobedience. We featured discussions about films adapted from books on this podcast before, including Armando Iannucci on The Personal History of David Copperfield and Ben Wheatley on High Rise. But none of these have centred the author's perspective. Alderman is absolutely fascinating on what it feels like to see your own work and a highly personal novel at that projected onto the big screen and featuring big-name actors including Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams. This does involve detailed discussion of the film's ending, so do beware spoilers. Disobedience stars Vice as Ronit, the estranged daughter of a much-respected rabbi who must return to the North London Orthodox Jewish community from which she fled years earlier, when her father dies. There, she awkwardly reconnects with two childhood friends who have chosen a different path. They are Dovid, her father's protégé, played by Alessandro Nivola, and his wife Esti, played by Rachel McAdams, and with whom Ronit has a particularly intense connection. Both Alderman and Gold are Hebrew speakers, and so there's a sprinkling of Hebrew, including one untranslated word, Rebetzin, which means the wife of a rabbi. According to Alderman's approving note, Rebetzin is also the only word that's mispronounced in the film, so let's hope my pronunciation passed muster. The extent to which art about an underrepresented community can or should be translated for the benefit of outsiders is a theme. Alderman was born and raised from, meaning religiously observant, in the community which disobedience depicts. She explains how she helped the film's Chilean director, Sebastian Lelio, achieve a sense of authenticity, while also appreciating the usefulness of his outsider's perspective. Jewishness and lesbian desire are the particulars of disobedience, but there are also universal truths about how individuals relate to the constraints of society, which director Lelio has previously explored namely in his 2013 Spanish-language drama Gloria, its 2018 English-language adaptation Gloria Bell, and the 2017 Oscar winner A Fantastic Woman. Clearly, these are also ideas that Alderman has been mulling over. She treats us to the most brilliant analogy for coming to terms with your own identity that you're ever likely to hear. Suffice to say, it involves Mr Bun the Baker and a slice of cold salmon. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with Naomi Alderman. 
writer of disobedience. So, so, so excited. <laughs> I have plenty of questions and I will ask only very few in order to make sure that you also have the opportunity to engage with this great mind that is Naomi Alderman. Oh, please, um, more. I, <laughs> there will be more because um, I think that out of all the people behind the film, you present the most fascinating aspect of it and I'll explain why. But one of the challenges of a book like Disobedience and the film that is based on the book is actually the depiction and the representation of the Orthodox mm. community. And this is, everybody knows, a community that is very segregated, that holds a certain mystery to the outsiders, that is not exactly a fan of media or film representation. And I want to ask you to start off with asking you, what are the challenges when yeah. you're faced with writing about that community? Yeah, I mean, for myself, when I was writing the book, my challenges were very much began with internal self-censorship. I had this feeling that I definitely should not be writing this book and that it was somehow a betrayal of the community to write anything negative at all or anything that could remotely be understood by the non-Jewish world as like at all representing problems or people were suffering you know I think probably what you learn growing up is that the best thing to if you have to write anything which you probably shouldn't you <laughs> the best thing to write would be 300 pages of closely argued praise so here are all the things that are amazing about the orthodox Jewish world and when I was writing the book I really I ended up folding into the book that sense of I ought to be silent and gave some of those ideas to Esty and to talk about the value of silence. I remember, God, a long time ago now, but once going to a shiur, like a talk by a woman, Rebertson, like a, you know, a learned woman. And the, na the name of the talk, this is not a joke, is the beauty of a woman is in her silence. So here I am, gully. <laughs> Quite good at talking. Um, and of course, you are an insider. I mean, you grew up in that community mm -hmm. and that enables you. Well, I would say um, I grew up, I grew up from, I grew up religious. The particular family that I come from was intellectually open. Mm. And that is not the case with every family in the Orthodox Jewish world, but it was the case with both my parents were big readers and, and they were encouraging me to go to university and, um, you know, wanted me to have a great education. So from that perspective, as every community, there are things that are in common and things that are different from family to family, as well as from street to street in Hendon and Golders Green. Uh, so yes, I grew up certainly in a community where the homes in that movie are, were homes that were open to me. I'm getting at the sense of authenticity mm. and the kind of sense of entitlement when one comes to represent a community mm. as such. So you were talking about that kind of notion of burden of representation. So that thing that is not represented often, mm. and we find it definitely we, when we think about gay representation. Mm. So then finally you've got the one film, and that film surely has to do everything for yeah. everyone, which is obviously you know bound to fail. But I'm asking actually because you had 
that entitlement, mm. you're part of that community, you bring that authenticity, that what we call access in film. But Sebastian Leila, who we know from a fantastic woman, just uh, won last year the best film in the foreign language category, Gloria, he is surely yeah. not part of that community. So can you talk about that relationship mm. and what it means actually to open up even that book to someone mm. who is supposed to tell that story on screen? Yeah, so I had a lot of conversations with Sebastian. He, so I was first approached by Rachel Weiss, who had loved the book and wanted to make it into a film. And there were many reasons that the approach that she suggested seemed very, very good to me. And one was that she came... Uh, suggesting Sebastian was a director that she really wanted to approach. And I watched his film, Gloria, and I could see exactly what she meant, that he is a filmmaker who makes beautiful films about... Uh, well, what he says is that women who might otherwise be a secondary minor character, a character that motivates somebody else's story. But in his movies, they're, they're right in the centre. And he had, so he had obviously already been thinking about how to access experiences that weren't his own life's experiences. And he was very concerned and interested to make sure that the movie was authentic. And I think, <laughs> I mean, to be, to be blunt, I, am I allowed to swear? <laughs> you don't need to ask, just be spontaneous. Okay. To be blunt, I, I could have really fucked things up for them. If, <laughs> if they had gone to make a movie that was not authentic, then I would be going around giving interviews going, well... Unfortunately, they didn't get so many things right. But in fact, we worked together on it extremely closely. I looked at multiple drafts. I, because, because I also teach in university, I would hand him these drafts back with like things circled and like tick, tick over here for a good line, which I think perhaps he wasn't expecting. But yeah, I think the combination works well because I know the world back to front, inside out. I can tell you there's like one word I think that is slightly mispronounced mm. in that movie. Mm. Somebody says Rebetsin and not Rebetsin. And I think that's the only thing. But you know, it's like a, one of those Navajo tapestries where you have to put one error in to show that it's kind of made by a person. Um, so you were but, very, very, very involved in the production. I was, yeah. We, we talked about it a lot and I introduced him to my family, my friends. So my dad is in the movie, my brother is in the movie. I, in this jacket, um, in the background when Esty is in the kosher supermarket. You see, you want to watch it again now, don't you? <laughs> and I introduced him to lots of people within the community who had them for Friday night dinner and for Shabbos lunch and, and sort of explained how the kitchen is laid out and all of these kind of details. And I think it's a really good combo, actually, to have somebody who knows it well and somebody else who can see how it will look to someone who doesn't understand it at all and is able to go, OK, because <laughs> Sebastian's from Chile. So what will somebody from Chile be look thinking when they see this? And will any of it make sense to them? And how can we help them understand it? Yeah, because I think that that's the beauty of the book and the film is that you're not trying to translate. Yeah. You're actually talking in the language mm. of the community with the notions, with a particular terminology. Mm. And then we're there kind of thrown into it mm -hmm. and then supposed to understand and get a better kind of insight yeah. into it. and to trust people that even if not everything is completely familiar, mm. that they will come on a journey and that mm. they will understand the movie as a, as a welcome open door to say, this is not supposed to be forbidding. This is, you, you can come and be part of it and there are parts that you won't understand just as if you were invited to synagogue for the first time. Yeah. 
And you know, with you know, many books are made into films, but one that loves the book always is faced with this kind of, is it better? <laughs> is it, did it do it justice? And actually I want to come at it from a different point of view and just to ask you as the writer and as someone who was so involved in the production, what do you think the film did that the book didn't? Ah. Or even to you as yeah. a kind of journey? I mean, for me, seeing the film is incredibly moving because I started work on this book 16 years ago, a long time ago. And I was, I was from, I was an Orthodox Jew when I wrote this book. I was continuing to be Orthodox all the way through writing it. And it was only when the book was finished and in fact published that this part of my life started to unwind, that that seemed like, okay, that was somehow completed now. And there's something so compassionate about this film it feels directly compassionate towards actual me in this very odd way of being able to now look back at an earlier version of myself and go, oh, yeah, that is a tough place. All of these characters are in a tough place. They have reached a point in their lives that a lot of people reach of, in, in all sorts of different ways, of feeling, oh, that life that I imagined I was going to have is not going to happen anymore. So I don't know what it's going to be now. I'm going to have to find out. That's really frightening. And that's where I was when I wrote the book. And I think the book is, I mean, look, it was my first novel. I wrote it in a very instinctive way, in the way that a lot of people write their first novels, not really, I mean, I, I, there was craft, but not really knowing exactly why it was that I was writing mm. that book. And I wouldn't have said at the beginning, oh, I think I'm writing myself out of Orthodox Judaism. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think there's a level of emotional defense in the book mm. and an unknowingness, which the film has stripped that away and has a compassion for my own self that I was not expecting. Mm. So I don't know if that's the answer you're hoping yeah, for. But it's fascinating. I was just like thinking, you know, read it with great interest, the piece you wrote in The Guardian mm. over the weekend. And you were talking about that process where you were when you decided actually to leave everything and to write your novel mm. and uh, you were talking about it as a process of coming out you know it's coming mm. out and just getting into that junction in life when you think well I, the path is quite clear it's not even terrible it's no. okay but actually that's not for me so yes and, and sometimes that, yeah. people I know will say to me oh well you, you must have been very angry with orthodox Judaism and I'm like, well up to a point but I'm also angry with Britain. I'm also, you know, there's all sorts of things in life one is angry about. It's just, it's not that I reached a point of going, oh, this is all bullshit. I reached a point of saying, yes, it's not for me. And part of that, in that article, you mentioned another film, which is Sandy Dubovsky, Trumbling oh, Before God. It's great. And this is a phenomenal film mm. uh, made in the 2001, I yeah, believe. Yeah, it was released in 2001. Uh, exactly, yeah. and, and made a re was sensational at the time because it depicted the life of orthodox gay men and women within mm. the orthodox community. And you said there was a, a certain kind of path of coming out at the time of people, <laughs> their parents coming around, they're going for dinner, then they go and watch the film, then they come out. Yeah. So <laughs> clearly that was a very useful kind of toolkit. Mm. And, I mean, when you see that, do you think it's also a kind of, not just the journey of the people who did it, but also a journey for the audience, a journey for people who go through this process, whether they are within this community or other close community? 
I mean, it would be wonderful if that were the case. It has, you can't write a book going, well, I bet this book will be very important to people. You know, I bet, I bet I'm writing something here that people are going to be... Um, <laughs> you write the best book you can, and you do it with a certain humility. But I think this is a, it's a really beautiful movie, and it's the kind of thing where hopefully you would be able to open up some conversations. And I have had fantastic letters over the years from people who said, I gave your book to my mother, and she read it, and then I came out to her. And yeah, and then we were able to talk about how that feels in the Jewish community or in Christian community. And a lot of different religious communities obviously have some problems with gay people. And so to be able to have those conversations, I think is, yeah, more the better. Conversation. I think this is, a, on that note, a good time to open up. Gentleman over there, thank you. Hello. Well, unlike a lot of people here, I haven't read the book. But right? um, I'm fascinated by the director's previous works and... Uh, Near the end, I was hoping that we were going to go off together into the sunset. I mean, <laughs> a bit romantic of me, I suppose, but... Uh, well, you never know, they might heart. do that afterwards. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was interesting, when the film came out in America a little bit earlier in the year, there was a sort of... People from the Orthodox community was going, oh, this is very anti-Orthodox. And there was a certain response from some gay people saying, oh, I wish this had been more like, you know, they bash down the patriarchy and run away together. And it's just, for people who are in this situation, and I know people who are, have been in this situation and some who still are, if you are a sincere Orthodox Jewish person and you are also gay, there is no 100% hooray happy ending. There is no, yay, I've like found the one thing. Because if you love that community, you may give it up in order to have the romantic and sexual life that you want, but you've given up something that is a warm communal life that might have been very dear to you. If you stay within the community, you continue to be able to be part of this faith community that is very important to you, but you give up on sex and romance that would be wonderful for you. So like, at what point do we go, yay? <laughs> I mean, I wrote this in The Guardian, the only thing that would really be a very happy ending is for the community to change. And I feel I will be continuing to give them a kicking for a long time and trying to encourage them. If you guys are interested in supporting somebody that is really trying to make a change, there is a charity called Keshet UK, K-E-S-H-E-T UK, which does a lot of work in the Orthodox Jewish community, just talking to rabbis and talking to educators, talking to people who run youth groups to say, okay how are you talking about gayness in your communal events? And if a child were to come out to you, what would you say to them? And giving them the opportunity to be able to think those things through. So, you know, obviously I get nothing for mentioning this charity, but just like go and have a look at it because it's, yeah, that's the only real happy ending is if things become a bit different and a bit easier in the way the community works. Mm. Down here, please. <laughs> I'm totally naive to the attitudes of being gay in the Jewish Orthodox community. You just said attitudes need to change, but for people who do come out into the community, what is the reaction at the moment? I've got absolutely no idea. Yeah, okay, so it very much depends on the part of the community that you're in. It's not a monolith. It also very much depends on your parents. So obviously, as everywhere, there are some parents who are just great and who go, I love you, whatever you know, you're, you're my child. I think, I think you're unlikely to get many people in the community thus far who will go, that's wonderful, I'm so pleased. 
on the other hand, you're probably unlikely to get that so much in the secular world, though probably more than you would in the orthodox world. There are people who like get a much more stern response than that. And um, sometimes, obviously, parents are just horrible people, and <laughs> as they often are in the world sometimes. And, uh, you know, there are just cases where you just have to kind of forget about the parents because you've got to go and live your own life. There are sort of Jew specific Jewish communal issues where... Well, I'll give you an example. I was at the funeral of the parent of a gay man that I know. He was... Uh, and whose family are orthodox, and whose family have been sort of okay, you know, they're like, all right then. And uh, <laughs> we were at this funeral conducted by the United Synagogues. That's quite a middle-of-the-road synagogue. So my friend, give me a, give me a man's name, please. Scott. Scott. My friend Scott. <laughs> Not Jewish. No. And what, what is his partner's name? Tony. Tony. Absolutely, okay. it was Tony. So yeah. my, my friend Scott was the mourner whose parent had just died, and Tony, his partner, was there to support him. And every time, every time the rabbi officiating was talking about the partners of the mourners, the officiant referred to them as the wives and there was Tony just standing there, kind of dealing with the fact that he was having to respond to, and will the wives go and stand over here, please? Yeah. So that sort of thing where up to a point people are trying, but nobody has really thought about it, and the language has not evolved. And those kind of conversations where you go, okay, Rabbi, what would you say to a child who came out to you that is the first time they've ever thought about it and no one has ever said to them okay so if scott is here mourning his parent and tony his partner is here what word would you like to use that is not wives because the rest of us the friends i mean obviously you know this is the way that the parent wanted to be buried and this is the kind of community that they came from and the rest of us, the friends, were just like, <gasps> every time he said it, we were just, oh, God. But, you know, just sort of carry on, because we're British. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum, and there's some people who are just hateful and horrible. There are some people who are lovely. And there's a lot of, like, ignorance and thoughtlessness in the middle. There's also, of course, the issue of leadership. And that yeah. is quite... You know, there is a spectrum there, and yeah. it's going from... I mean, I should say, the chief rabbi has just released some guidance about how to talk about... how to preventing homophobic and transphobic bullying in Jewish schools, which is extremely sound, and is all about putting respect for the, the person and dignity of all humanity and love for all people at the center of the way that we talk and being able to respond to, you know, a child calling another child gay by just, look, we don't talk in that way at this school. That's not how we show each other kindness in this school. So it's, it's brilliant to read, and I, and I think it's already being circulated, actually, in different faith communities around the world to say, this is a good approach. Like, cut the Gordian knot. Don't sit around arguing about what verses in Leviticus mean. Nobody is ever going to be able to agree on that. Just treat each other with dignity and respect. Zo, <laughs> as they say in Israel, means yeah. that's that. Hi. Um, obviously, there were like quite a lot of 
differences in the storyline between the book and the film, both in the way that Ronnie kind of approaches the situation and in the ending. I was just wondering if you could talk about who made that decision and how it came about. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. The ending is different. It seemed like that I, when I saw it, I thought that's great. I don't fundamentally believe that there's only one ending to this sort of story. And, you know, what are you going to do about this? There is, I don't think, as I say, I don't think there is a happy ending. So to just play, to play with it and see what else could you find in this situation, I think it's right. Also, things have moved on in the past 16 years. And I think it is, it's certainly more plausible that David would be able to make an emotional leap there and just go, okay, I think this needs to be finished now. And that, the community might be able to somehow tolerate it, be with it. You know, I think it's uh, it's as realistic as the other ending, you know. Like, people complained about the ending of the novel, that they felt that it was unrealistically positive about the community. And I get that as well. Just like, it was a sort of, it's a sort of slightly, this is my best case scenario in the novel, where, like, I think this is probably as good as they would get. And I think this is a different kind of best case scenario and that's all negotiations. Yeah, in terms of Ronit and her background, I think the essence of the character to me is the same character. Film is its own medium, you know, and if you're a novelist and you've written a novel, you know, there are things that novels can do that films can't do. Novels can go inside a character's head at a moment's notice and jump from place to place. And, and like, you can really get a lot of interiority into a novel, which obviously a movie is surface. So you need to find different ways to express things. And I felt Sebastian was a brilliant director and the cast was amazing. And at a certain point in that sort of process, you have to say, I'm happy for some brilliant artist to be interpreting my work. You know, like the existence of the film doesn't destroy every copy of the novel. It also strikes me as interestingly Jewish to have multiple versions. <laughs> and discuss them. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Hello. Um, you mentioned that Judaism is not a monolith, mm. and obviously the secular community has kind of moved a bit more faster mm. with the times than the Orthodox. And I kind of wondered if you could comment on how that secular community could help those that leave the Orthodox community, whether it's because of LGBT issues or otherwise. Yeah, that is a really interesting question. Yeah, helping people who leave. I mean, I have done a little bit of work, just a little bit in this area, or at least, you know, encounter people who are in the process of leaving the Orthodox Jewish world. It's extremely tough. There is a... I mean, many of the reasons that it's tough is, for God's sake, please support the Department of Education right now, trying to get ultra-Orthodox schools, much more Orthodox than the schools you just saw in this, but ultra-Orthodox schools to fucking teach their children something. Uh, because it is, I feel some of you will, it's a shunder for the Yidden. It's a disgrace that there are schools in this country that are not teaching secular subjects to children after the age of 12. In fact, the boys come off somewhat worse than the girls on this because the girls are supposed to go out and be able to earn a living for their husbands who are going to be studying Jewish subjects all day. So the girls at least get to learn kind of typing, secretarial skills. And the boys from 12 onwards, they, they have nothing that they can use outside the Orthodox world. They're going to be employed 100% in the Orthodox world. They are very, very bright kids who are essentially experiencing foot binding of the mind. 
And they call it the fact that they're now being put under pressure by the Department of Education to actually teach some shit is, uh, I mean, obviously they're teaching Talmud, right? They're teaching Yiddish and Aramaic and Hebrew. And these are all wonderful, interesting subjects, but not at the expense of actually being able to speak English and go and interact with the modern world. So from that perspective, when well-meaning outsiders say, oh, but we must leave them to their cultural ways, just, sorry, fuck off. Just, like, these are also human beings, and children have a right to understand the world around them and to learn what has been learned by science about where we live and to experience the literature that has been written about what it means to be a human being. And, yeah, that whole situation makes me very angry. So that's a good thing to do. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much. The book has become recently one of my favorite books ever. It's just, I felt like it was so personal in a way that not that many books managed to capture with several characters. And so one of the interesting things for me is that obviously the combination of the three main characters approaches the situation from really different, not backgrounds, but... Starting points, yeah. yeah. But then all three of them in the book are so incredibly relatable because their inner monologue is really, really detailed. So I was wondering how much of each of them is you and how much isn't. (laughs) Like, the, the honest answer is they're all me. They're all me. And I was in a place of trying to reconcile different parts of myself when I wrote the book. And on some psychological level it's a fable about reconciliation of different parts of the self and obviously it is also about characters who exist in one's imagination so I hope that hasn't spoiled the book for anybody but I I think that that is often the case in writing that you're writing about different aspects of yourself in the book David gets terrible migraines which I also get terrible migraines so those are definitely my migraines I mean I would also say that the events of this film, and indeed of the book, have, did not happen in that way in my life. There are elements of different parts of my life, but it's not a piece of autobiography. But the ways of thinking about the orthodox world and about what is worthwhile in life, which is somehow what it's about, you know, is there a value to keeping on with this thing that is old and precious and beautiful? Or is there more of a value to living a free life according to your own desires? These are questions that are still, they're still live for me. Do you know there's, there's a prayer, the Shema, the prayer in Hebrew, where one of the verses has, like, don't go wandering off after your heart and after your eyes. Tell me if I mistranslate that. And that's a very deep and interesting thing to have in a prayer. Like, doesn't the whole of secular society tell us to go wandering off after our own hearts and our own desires? So then, what's the right thing to do? It remains a big question. Uh, One thing that you mentioned about the similarities between being Jewish and being gay, Mm. talking about identity, because this film is about identity, Mm. about belonging, about mortality, Mm. about who we are, what we want to be. And you talk about the fact that you can be a little bit gay, a little bit Jewish-ish, yeah, Jewish-ish. Yeah. That's enough, yeah? yeah? That's enough to make you one. But that does not mean 
that you have to practice it. Yes. Okay. And there's this whole notion actually of Judaism. Does it exist without practice? Mm. And does gayness exist without practice? And what we see here is actually you have to get onto the practice mm. in order to, well, mm. we're not going to talk about that scene just now. <laughs> it's coming from it's a the, good scene though, right? <laughs> um, but I want to talk about that because mm. the whole thing, you know, you talk about giving voice, you talk also about giving visibility mm. and the doing. Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, Judaism is all about the practice, right? Uh, Judaism is more interested in the practice than in what goes on inside your head. And yet, if you are... Let's say you're Esty, but you've never, ever kissed a woman, but you're still gay, right? Like, even though you haven't, you know that that's who you are. But it's complicated, because if you don't practice, then what can it change in you? That's the wondering. Yeah. That's the girl wonder. Yeah. And that's, that's also one of the sort of questions of the book is, you know, it's funny. I, I've, like, after the book was published, I met a lot of people who sort of came up to me after book events and said quietly well, you know, she never talked about it, but my mum was Jewish. And, and this, this made me so sad mm. that all that these people have been introduced to was some kind of shame. Mm. And, like, that's when you don't practice. That's all you've got is mm. a sort of dull sense of shame. So, yeah, might as well try to see how if you can make something new out of these weird pieces. I, I used to say, actually, a few years ago, when I was trying to make sense of my own bloody life, I, I said, every one of us gets dealt a hand of cards in life. There's everything from, like, what you look like, who your parents were, what community you came from, what particular intellectual gifts you had, what particular physical gifts you had, you know, what your heart's desires were, all of these things. And some people get a hand and they go, oh, I've got two, three, four, five, and six of hearts. Okay, brilliant. And, and some of us look at it and go, right, I've got the two of diamonds, Mr. Bun the baker, <laughs> a piece cut out from a cornflakes packet and a slice of smoked salmon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go. And like what you have to do is you go and pl it means you can go and play in more games, but it's going to take <laughs> you longer to get somewhere with all of them. You're going to have to go wandering around going, okay, has anybody else got fish? <laughs> okay, we have time for one more question that was there at the top, uh, waving. Hello. Um, first of all, thank you so much for that story. It was just so beautiful and I couldn't stop crying. Oh. And I wasn't expecting to cry. <laughs> oh. I cried um, the first time I saw it as well. So. <laughs> And I'm really looking forward to reading the book. I guess my question is, I feel like people who are part of marginalized communities, it's, it's so hard to find queer histories that we can relate to. Like I find out myself, like it's, it's, you're just looking for like a glimpse of something that you can be like, oh my God, a hundred years ago, there was someone like me. Mm. So, well, before you started to write the book, did you ever find any piece of literature, poetry, huh. or anything that made you feel like, oh, actually, there is something. I mean, obviously, David and Jonathan are there in the Bible. So that is helpful. <laughs> like, there they are. And, and, and the Hebrew is a little bit, like, it's just a bit, it's more suggestive mm. than the English. Mm. The English has got, um, so there's, there's a bit where they're kind of parting and they embrace. And then the, 
The English translator as they embraced until David exceeded. So I actually can't remember what the Ivrit is, no, but like there's some sort of overflowed something. I don't remember. Um, yeah. So that's quite good. You can often, off, the Bible is such, I mean, like as long as you don't treat it as like every single part of this is exactly applicable to how we should be living today. It's a really good, interesting book. Like they put a lot of stuff in there, just, just going, here's some stories from our past. I'm trying to think what else I found. Actually, this is not an answer to your question, but it is an interesting thing. Um, <laughs> a, a student of mine, Beatrice Garrard, you will look out for this name in the future. She's a creative writer, is working on a novel that includes some history of... Uh, it's, she's Jewish, and, and it, it's a novel that includes some Jewish history of trans people. And <laughs> she used to work in Jewish archives... And she found the most brilliant story of a couple, a man and a woman who arrived at Ellis Island. And they used to sort of strip them to like check their clothes for lice or whatever. And on inspection, when they stripped them, the husband was found to be, according to the people who stripped him, was found to be a woman. And they sort of were like, oh. But um, they did an interview, and they were sort of like, okay, let's talk to you about this, all right, all right. And after some conversation, they were like, oh, yeah, no, you're a man. Yeah, no, 100%, you're a man. And so they just signed him into the country and gave him his papers as a man, and that was that. And it's amazing what people are able to see and understand about the world if nobody has ever taught them they ought to be kind of politically seeing something different. Um, so I think, yeah, these stories are out there, but... Uh, also, you can make them up for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know that people like us didn't just turn up from nowhere. Like, there's been all sorts of different people doing different things throughout history. So if you can't find it, make it up. Well, I think that, you know, in making it in a, you know, we talk a lot about the notion of mortality. And actually, you go on to recommend it because it kind of gives you a bit of a perspective. Yeah. And I think that there is something about books, there's something about films that preserve life mm. in a way that actually becomes these treasures that actually we have and nobody can mm. take away. It helps that Rachel Wise yeah. is also helping. But, um, <laughs> um, on that note, I would like to thank Naomi Alderman waiting for her <laughs> power to become a film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, this is like uh, clearly, a, a, you know, a mover and a shaker. And tell your friends, of course, to come and watch it here at the Barbican from tomorrow. Thank oh, you yeah. and good evening. Because apparently that's quite important, the opening weekend, they tell me. It so, is crucial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk on disobedience with novelist Naomi Alderman. You might be interested to know that her fifth and probably most famous novel, feminist sci-fi The Power is also currently being adapted for the screen. The Barbican Screen Talks archive is full of shifting perspectives on timeless classics and hints at further viewing. If you'd like to hear more and support Barbican Cinema, please rate and subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Acast or your usual podcast providers or visit barbican.org.uk. We'd also love to hear from you on the films featured in this series or anything else cinema-related. You can find us on social media at Barbican Centre.
Barbican Screen Talks Archive is presented by me, Ellen E. Jones, and produced by Jane Long for Loftus Media. We'll be back next time with the final episode in this current series, a frank and hilarious discussion with actor Richard E. Grant about the film for which he received his first Oscar nod, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Until then, be well and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.